Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Van Horn. I'm the director of the library company, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening, uh, especially those of you who maybe are new to the library company and attending your first program. Uh, it's good to have you with us, uh, especially. On your chairs, you'll find a couple of things. One is a brochure that tells you a little about the library company's history and mission as an independent research library uh, for the study of American history. And also, there's a couple of cards describing some upcoming programs. Uh, the purple one talks about uh, Philadelphia Gothic, which is an exhibition that will be opening later this month. Uh, that pays some attention for the first time to several uh, less well-known Philadelphia authors who specialized in horror and crime and luridness and the supernatural. Uh, Charles Brockton Brown, Robert Montgomery Byrd, and George Lepard. And also it gives some attention to the writer who's more familiar to you, uh, whom they influenced, and that's, of course, Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, that's opening on October 29th with a talk by Professor Christopher Luby uh, from UCLA. And also uh, on November um, 6th, we have a program sponsored by our program in early American economy and society called Coffee's Creole Economy uh, with a paper by Professor Mich uh, Michelle McDonald from Stockton College. Uh, and so I hope you'll be able to join us for that as well. And I also want to draw your attention to our exhibition uh, in the gallery, Black Founders, uh, Free Black Community in the Early Republic. Uh, this is an exhibition we mounted this year uh, in commemoration of the uh, abolition of the international slave trade in 1808, and it draws on the vast resources of the library company in African American history, uh, curated by Philip Lepsansky at the back of the room there, our curator of African American history. This is the last day the exhibition is open. It comes down tomorrow so that we can uh, prepare for Philadelphia Gothic. So I encourage you all to take the opportunity to spend a little time in the gallery, maybe after the program, uh, to check it out before it goes away for good. So now on to the main event. Uh, Tom Thomas P. Slaughter is a professor of history at the University of Rochester. He's a prolific author. He's written five major books uh, after mastering five uh, very disparate subjects. And we're going to hear him this evening speaking about the latest in that, in that string of books. And that's his new biography, The Beautiful Soul of John Woolman, Apostle of Abolition, uh, just out uh, from Hill and Wang, and you've all seen this on display. Tom Slaughter is a great friend of the library company. Uh, he's been a fellow here twice. Uh, working on a couple of his projects. He was a fellow first in 1987, which was the very first year we had a research fellowship program, and he was working on a project that became his first book, Bloody Dawn, Racial Violence in the Antebellum North. And then again, he was a fellow in 1993-94 academic year for work on a project that became his book, The Natures of John and William Bartram. The other books, other than uh, the three I've already mentioned, were The Whiskey Rebellion, and Exploring Lewis and Clark, which came out about the time of the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, Professor Slaughter received his PhD from Princeton, and he's held fellowships from just about every possible source you can think of, the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation, uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities, um, the Lilly and Danforth Foundations, the American Council of Learned Societies, uh, in addition to the two fellowships he held here at the library company. He's currently working on two other projects. One is a book called Independence, America in its Revolutionary Century, which he describes as a one-volume synthetic world history of the founding of the United States. 
And then he's working on a book uh, concerning Philadelphia in the year 1793, which was, of course, the year of the Great Yellow Fever epidemic, but was a year that saw many other uh, interesting developments as well. His new book on Woolman has been receiving uh, excellent reviews. It was a starred review in uh, a book list, uh, Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, and those of you who read The New Yorker may have noticed that it was just in the current issue uh, in the briefly noted section where they only acknowledge maybe a half a dozen books that come out uh, each week. So that's a great point of pride, I think, for Professor Slaughter. We're delighted to have him here this evening to share his insights into John Woolman, who's been described by some as a, as a saint and by others as the founding father of abolition. Uh, so please uh, welcome Professor Thomas Slaughter. Thank you, and it is always cool to be here. I don't think I, I can imagine writing a book that doesn't doesn't start here. So it's it's really a thrill to have one end here as well. Um, imagine that you're sitting at home one night, knock on your door. You look outside and you recognize the guy. You don't know him terribly well, but you know he's not a threatening person, so you open the door and invite him in. He doesn't respond to your welcome directly. He says, friend, I've got a concern. Walks into your house, walks into your living room, inviting to sit down. He looks around the room, declines the seat. So that's a very nice carpet you have, but you notice that he's standing on the edge of it. He's not standing on the carpet. He says, uh, where was it made? You say, I don't know. And he says, you mind if I look? He lifts the corners up, finds the tag, finds out it was made, not surprisingly, in China. Um, it's a very nice carpet. Um, he says, I've always thought you were really very, very nice shoes. Where were your shoes made? shoes are made in China. Um, it's a little awkward, right? This guy's standing in your living room, so you invite him, you say, would you like something to eat or to drink? Would you like something? He says, maybe something to drink. Say, I've had a glass of wine. His eyes light up. Wine sounds good to him. He says, um, and, and you ask him what kind he'd want, assuming he's going to tell you white, red, Merlot, something. He says, uh, well, where's your wine from? And you say, well, I've got some from New York, uh, California, France, South Africa, Australia. No, thank you. And you say, um, well, how about, and you walk into the kitchen with him, you know, how about, a, how about a glass of cider, knowing where this is headed here now. Those were from too far away. The carpet's from too far away. Let's get something local, some, uh, some apple cider from Bucks County. And he says, great, perfect, uh, glass of apple cider. You take the, you take the uh, plastic jug out of the refrigerator, and he says, uh, oh, oh, it's in plastic. I'm, I don't really think I want, want the, the cider either. How about a glass of water? Tap water, please. So you go to the cabinet, you get out a cup for him, and he says, uh, do you have anything but plastic cups? Um, help yourself. Which, which cup do you want? Take whichever one you want. And then 
you take it to the refrigerator, you pull out a pitcher, you're going to pour in, and he says, no, no, tap water. He said, well, this is tap water. It's just filtered, and we keep it. And he says, no, I want it right on top. This guy's a pain in the neck, and you still haven't gotten to the point where you've even begun to hear what the guy's concern is. This is going to be a long, long conversation with this guy. What you have to imagine for me to try to get you in the mood for this guy, John Woolman, is that by the end of the evening, whatever your politics are, whatever your beliefs are about the global economy, um, global warming, uh, about the responsibility that we have for our shoes, our socks, our belts, and everything else that we live with, whatever you think about your computer, your television, uh, your uh, sound system if you have one, whatever you think about these things, your car, by the end of the evening, not only is this guy going to convince you that you should not own any of those things and that you should not ever again use the air conditioning in your house and that indeed you should move to a house about a third or a quarter the size of the one you're living in. He's going to convince you whatever your beliefs are on these subjects already, however well you already know more or less the statistics that he's going to recite to you about the problems associated with all these things that are in your life, despite the fact that you believe yourself to be a good person, he is going to not only convince you of these facts, but you're actually going to act on them. You're actually going to rid yourself of at least some of these possessions that are central to your life as you now live it. That's the guy I want to talk about. The guy who does the equivalent of this back in the 18th century. And that's the closest I can get to an equivalent, the closest I can think of to an equivalent. And we're not even on the same page because in the 18th century we're talking about human beings directly, not human beings collectively. We're talking about individual human beings. We're talking about lives of people who, who you know, who you work with, and in the case of the people who he's talking to, people you actually own. Um, in 1985, I had just started teaching. I had started teaching two years uh, before that, and I was getting around to the second time I was teaching some courses, which is a, a big moment in the history of a, a college teacher. Um, I actually think the third time is the charm. The first time, um, you know painfully well what didn't go right. The second time, the things that did go right the first time don't go right again, and you have no idea why. Cause it right the, first time. the third time, you actually begin to feel like you know what you're doing. Uh, but this was the, the second time. And I was introducing a discipline that I still try to keep to, actually, totally throwing away four lectures every time I teach a course, just doing it top to bottom all over again. It's good for me. It keeps me alive. Um, and I needed a, a, a lecture, or I really wanted a lecture in this course on the American Revolution about the origins of abolitionism. So I read the, the standard sources, uh, excellent sources, that all uh, people in my line of work would have gone to. And central to the story of the origins of abolitionism that was told in every single book and article I read was this man named John Woolman, a tailor from New Jersey, 
born in 1720, died in 1772, he was smack dab in the middle of every kind of narrative that was being written about the origins of, of, of anti-slavery. Not that everybody looked at him the same, not that everybody gave him the same standing, but he was right there in the middle. And I had a problem with him being right there in the middle because I didn't really understand how he fit in that middle uh, from the way these narratives were told. If you tell it as, an, uh, as a story in intellectual history, he's not coming at quite the right time if you're putting the Enlightenment as the, the, the central player in the way you want to talk about this. Um, Charles Montesquieu's, Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws. Um, the woman starts working on his anti-slavery mission two years before that's published, so you can't really you know, neatly fit him in, in that trajectory. Uh, his, his writings, and I think particularly his major writing, which was his spiritual autobiography, seemed very much to me, and, and did in 1985, to be not of the Enlightenment at all. Um, over time, I've grown to think of them, uh, his writings as in some ways actually anti-enlightenment. Uh, so that, that wasn't working for me. And my curiosity was piqued by the fact that this man was central, and I didn't really understand how to fit him in between the radicals who came before him, all of whom got thrown out of the Society of Friends, and those who came very shortly after him had fit him within the ideas that came before him during his lifetime and directly afterwards. It just didn't work for me. The narrative, I didn't understand the narrative. I understand why this tailor from Mount Holly, New Jersey, would end up being so much a part a central part of this story. So I had the idea that maybe I'd, I'd write about this guy, you know, a way of solving my own problem of not understanding him. Um, and I, I talked to uh, historians of Quakerism, of 18th century Quakerism, uh, and uh, both of them were very, very kind to me and, and uh, uh, very tolerant of me and said, you know, this is a wonderful idea, but do you think that if this could be done, other people wouldn't have done it already? Um, the problem sources. Um, we just don't have the sources about him. He said, you know, we know, we know more about John Woolman during the last four months of his life when he goes to England. He dies in England in 1772 on his anti-slavery mission. He dies with smallpox while he's there. And he's a novelty in England, so we have a lot of commentary. There's correspondence across the Atlantic where people are trying to uh, lay a path for him so that English won't just... Uh, dismiss him immediately because of his eccentricities. Um, we have people writing to each other or writing in their journals when they see him in England because the man's an entire novelty. He's a novelty because he's, a, he's a, an absolute eccentric. And I, in my fabricated story about a modern version of this guy, I don't even begin to capture the real eccentricities. The man is a Quaker. The idea, if you're a Quaker, is not to stand out. You don't wear things that make you look different from people. You don't, you, you don't do things that make you stand out as an individual. The goal is to be part of a society, to be part of, rather than to be above or outside of. And yet this guy dresses entirely in white. He wears a white fur hat, um, which 
at the point that he decides to start wearing white is actually quite fashionable. And there's nothing worse for an 18th century Quaker than being fashionable. So this guy looks to Quakers to be extremely odd. He looks to everybody else to be even odder. Um, he, by the time he gets to England, not only is he dressed entirely in white, but he's a vegetarian. Not the only vegetarian, right? Benjamin Franklin experienced, uh, experimented with this. There were other people in the 18th century who did. But it's part of his eccentricity and it's part of the way in which he's not the ideal house guest. Um, he won't drink out of anything that's made of silver. He won't be served out of anything with any utensil or out of any container that's any way related to silver. He's got a testimony against silver because it's mined in Mexico uh, by slaves, um, by workers who are, are treated extremely badly. Um, so he's got, he won't ride. He won't accept a ride by this point in his life. He's not using animals at all. He's walking everywhere he goes. He's walked from Mount Holly, New Jersey, to the western shore of Maryland. He's walked to New England. He's now from London. He's walking the whole of, uh, of England and all, all the way back and forth between all these meetings until he gets up to, up to York. Um, he's, he's odd. Um, he's different. Uh, he is not a guy um, who, who fits in a, 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 at all well. So you can find that out about him in the late stages of his life. Uh, but the sort of sources that usually you hope for to, to enrich a biography aren't really available. So, you know, I said to myself, after having spoken to these people who knew a whole lot more about it than, than, than I did, that, you know, what I was really interested in anyway was the interior of Walmart. I wasn't really interested in the sort of exterior biographical details of a life uh, that are the normal parts of biographies of 18th century figures or figures from other centuries. I'm not looking at a man of action like a George Washington kind of action figure. I'm not looking at Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin. I'm looking at a guy, I'm trying to understand what makes him tick, uh, which is something somewhat different from understanding exactly uh, what he did on a day-to-day on -day basis. And it, it turns out this man is the world's worst travel writer. Um, he will say, you know, I, I left Mount Holly today and I walked to Philadelphia. I, there's a river in between, so you know something else happened, but, you know, he, 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 does, he writes. You know, I, I, I walked, uh, the next day I, I walked to Lancaster. But you're not getting anything. You don't know whether the sun was out, whether it was raining, whether it was muddy, whether he was cold. You have no idea what's going on here. Whether you met anybody on the way, you have no idea. Just a horrible, horrible travel writer. Um, because he's only interested in what's on the inside. So when you begin to focus on the inside, you're focusing on what he thought was important. He the exteriors were irrelevant. So I thought that would be the way to go. Um, you had a copy of my book. If I can borrow a copy of my book in a minute here, that would be useful. I should have thought of this ahead of time. So in 1985, I decide that with, with the central source of the... Uh, the spiritual autobiography of, of John Woolman, his, his journal. This is the first edition of it, which I'm actually glad to pass around. These things aren't as fragile as they look. Um, so as long as you don't, you know, spill your lunch on it, we're just fine here. 
This is my version of bringing Coles to Newcastle. I just brought an 18th century book into the library company. You can't get out of it, though. Probably not. Um, they've dealt with people like this before, I'm sure. Phil's the guard back there. I've got my eye on him. Um, so in 1985, I'm assuming that my central source, the key to understanding this man, John Woolman, why he took the path he did, why he became the man he did, and ultimately why he actually ever was able to convince people to act on the morally right thing to do, even when they thought it was against their own self, economic self-interest to do so. How, how this worked, what was the mechanism by which all this worked. So in 1985, I started with the journal, which is, there's no way to avoid doing that. And I get to the second page. And on the second page, there's a dream. And I read the dream. I'll, I'll read this to you right now. Um, I had a dream about the ninth year of my age as follows. I saw the moon rise near the west and run a regular course eastward. So swift that in about a quarter of an hour, she reached our meridian. When there descended from her a small cloud on a direct line to the earth, which lighted on a pleasant green about 20 yards from the door of my father's house, in which I thought I stood, and was immediately turned into a beautiful green tree. The moon appeared to run on with equal swiftness and soon set in the east, at which time the sun arose at the place where it commonly does in the summer, and shining with full radiance in the serene air, it appeared as pleasant a morning as ever I saw. All this time, I stood still in the door in an awful frame of mind, and I observed that as heat increased by the rising sun, it wrought so powerfully on a little green tree that the leaves gradually withered, and before noon it appeared dry and dead. Then there appeared a being, small of size, full of strength and resolution, moving swift from the north southward called the sunworm. Though I was a child, this dream was instructive to me dream was not instructive to me. <laughs> and so I went back to these sources, because a lot of people have, have written about John Woolman. A lot of Quakers have, because he's always been a central figure. A uh, central figure for uh, people who are interested in reform, uh, mystics, people who are interested in mystical experiences, for Quakers, for people who are interested in... Um, in labor relations, he's seen as the father, at one point in the late 19th century, he's called the father of socialist labor relations. He's seen as the father of um, uh, not uh, anti-war tax, uh, people who wouldn't pay war taxes in the 20th century. He's got all these claims to being a father. Um, and uh, so I figured, you know, somebody's figured out this dream at some point. Well, I, nobody has. I mean, every place that it comes up, it just gets fluffed over. I mean, yeah, and then there was this dream, and then people move on. I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to write an interior biography of this guy, and I get to page two, and I can't figure out this dream, I can't do it. It just can't happen. Um, so that was 1985. Um, as John was saying, I wrote other books between then and now. 1990, I finished a book. I picked this one up again. Still, had then I couldn't get past page two. 1995, picked up the project again. Same problem. 2001, I pick it up. 
And this time, I think I began to understand it. And I think the secret to that is by that, 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 by that point, enough brain cells had died that I no longer was conscious of what I couldn't understand and what I could. But what I had also begun to understand is the ways in which you can work with texts to contextualize them, to make what you have uh, more richly revealing uh, than it might otherwise seem to be on a surface reading. You can read a text and read what it says and either agree with it, disagree with it, find somebody who agrees with it, disagree with it, put it in a historical uh, situation. But looking deeply into the context in which it's written is one way to find out more about what it means than the author intended and quite possibly than the author knew. And so there are a number of ways to go about doing this to understand John Woolman. First of all, not only that journal, but the pamphlets he wrote, um, exist in multiple drafts. We have three complete drafts of that journal that have survived, um, and fragments as well. And we have the same sort of uh, sources related to many of the other uh, his other writings. So we can see the path that these texts take uh, between the first time he writes and when he's ready to let them go. Um, this is fascinating and important because if you're writing a spiritual, if you're Quaker and writing a spiritual autobiography in the 18th century, you're about the thousandth person um, among those who were published, about the thousandth person to have done this. And so you have a, it's a genre, right? There's, a, there's a, an ideal spiritual, Quaker spiritual autobiography. But you don't have just the Quaker spiritual autobiographies that you're working in. Um, you have the uh, Puritan ones. You have the now secular ones, um, right? People like Franklin and Rousseau are writing in the 18th century. He doesn't read those. They're not published yet. Um, but you have spiritual autobiographies going back at least to Augustine, uh, which are available to you and are models uh, for what you need to do. So there's a, there, there's a structure to these. And they have, if you begin to look at the ones that came before him, he's trying to make his fit. Um, they start in a standard way. They move through a standard process. They reach a standard end. And you're telling a story, your story, within the context of other stories that people have told. So what you have in a first draft, a second draft, and a third draft is the attempt to get ever closer to that model in some ways then. The first draft is very interesting because that's the way it comes out the first time. So maybe that's, in some ways, closer to where his, where his mind is. Um, but each of those drafts is going to be revealing differently so as he moves down what he sees as a path uh, towards an, uh, an ideal uh, text. We also have, over the, in my path over the course of, of these uh, two decades, is to begin to read what he read. It's another way of trying to understand what's going on in this man's mind. There's no obvious, clear, and direct connection between what somebody reads and what somebody does. But where there are clear parallels, where um, texts are specifically cited, uh, where you see within the known world of the readings that he was exposed to, a pattern that helps you to understand the text. This is another great way um, to get deeper knowledge of what's going on in the man's head. What I find out over time, and in the end, it seems 
simple to me, and I wish I had figured it out 15 years ago, is that if you, there, there are people who do wonderful things like um, count biblical citations um, and the location of them uh, in, in the writings of famous people. So there is some wonderful work in which you know every time uh, that William Penn cited the Bible, or quoted from the Bible, uh, when uh, um, William Barclay, the, the Quaker theologian from the uh, uh, 17th century, when George Fox, one of the founding members of the Society of Friends, uh, when other 18, Margaret Bell, the wife of uh, George Fox, when uh, Anthony Benezet, uh, a contemporary of Woman's, all the famous Quakers, famous to other Quakers, anyway, all the famous Quakers of the 17th, 18th century, people have sat down and noted every biblical citation they make. Um, what you find out when you, you look through that literature is that every single Quaker who I just named, and the others who've been counted as well, cite the New Testament more or less twice as often as they go to the Old Testament. And that makes sense. Uh, makes a lot of sense, uh, given the nature of the religion and where it's coming from in the middle of the 17th century and where it's going in the 18th century. John Woolman is the only one who cites the Old Testament twice as often as he cites the New Testament. So if I'm looking for a key to an eccentric thinker in the middle of the 18th century, a man who is deeply steeped in the Bible and on a daily basis immerses himself in the Bible. This has to be a clue to the differences uh, about him. And so that's extremely helpful, it seems to me. And then, if you go past that information to look at exactly where this man goes for his wisdom, for his authority, uh, he goes not just randomly. Uh, he doesn't go you know, across the, the, the Old Testament. He goes consistently to four prophets. He goes to Jeremiah, Hosea, Habakkuk, and Isaiah. And these are the sources for not only a good bit of his thinking, but, I now believe, the source, his model for who he was going to be in relationship to other people. He doesn't ever claim to be a prophet, but he models his life on that of the prophets. He's not a man of the Enlightenment, a man of the New Testament. He's indeed a throwback. He's a throwback to 17th century Quakerism. He's a throwback to the sort of authority that comes directly out of the, out of the prophets. Now, what he understands is that these four prophets, the way he reads them, these four prophets are not threatening their people. They are not in the way that prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament are often written about. They aren't the guys who threaten that God is going to do away with you all if you don't immediately change. He reads them, rather, as men of, men of peace and men of hope. And that's a quite reasonable way to read these four prophets. He believes that they are men who are giving their people the, the direct word of God and giving them an opportunity to accept it. That what they are all preaching is the same message that Christ preaches uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you look at that backwards, I would say, he's reading those four prophets through the Sermon on the Mount. 
And so what he's extracting from them is, an, is a message that, that ties the Old Testament and the New Testament together and has a vision that you can apply to the whole world. And that's what he's doing. And the other thing he's learning from the prophets is how you deliver a message. And he struggled with this throughout his life. But this is the, the key to beginning to understand, I think, how he could walk into your house and convince you to give up your television. He saw the prophet's method as one in which you don't ever argue with people. The message is its own authority. You don't build cases. You don't argue points. You don't deliver statistics. You just give the message and you walk away from it. He's not a man of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is all about compromise. The Enlightenment is all about belief in the improvability of human beings and the world step by step by step. That's not John Woolman. John Woolman was prophetic. He believed that there was a truth and you delivered the truth now, undiluted, and without compromise. He believed that every step was a step down a slippery slope that wouldn't end. So no compromise. This is the prophet's, the prophet's vision. Now this could be very harsh. And the man was anything but harsh. His message was wrapped in a message of, that started with self-criticism. The man didn't walk into anybody's house and say, you know, guy, you're a bad person and you have to change. He walked into the house and said, I am guilty for the existence of slavery and I need your help. I need you to help me get past, not the guilt, but get past the cause of the guilt. I am responsible for slavery and I need you to help me. And he told that story in a way that flattered people, actually. But it was sincere. I don't think this was ever tactic. But as I began to try to understand how you ever convinced somebody who owned a slave not to sell that slave, but to free that slave, it, I began to realize that his method was First, self-criticism. Second, to say, you know something? You're actually better than I am. And some of the ways in which you are better than I am actually have led you down a path that is unfortunate. He would start this story. His story was a story of the connections among all things, that everything was connected to everything else, right? You buy your shoes. You're responsible for the abuse of child labor in Asia, right? Everything is connected to everything. You use your computer, you're responsible for a war that's about oil, fossil fuels. He's not going to blame other people. He's not going to blame you. He's going to blame himself for any role that he plays in that. And he's trying throughout his life to get closer and closer and closer to relieving himself of responsibility at that moment, but he's always, he's got this history. He can't shake his history of guilt. And so he's always got that too. 
And he's going to start this story. When everything's connected, your problem is where do you start the story? The way he, the, he starts the story by saying to people, you know, you are a great, he was usually talking to man, men, you are a great family man. It's one of the things I've always admired about you. And I, I wish I was as good as you. My wife and child are at home, and here I am out, out, out in the middle of the night. I should be home helping them, and I'm out here with you, and, and here you are home with your family. I've always admired you in relationship to your children, and I wish I could be as, as, as good a family man as you are. You know, that's why you own slaves, because you love your children so much. And that has started off like a compliment. But it has created an opening for a conversation because it confuses you and it doesn't put you immediately on the defensive. And what he says is, you love your children too much. You love your children so much that what you have tried to do is accumulate so that you can give them more than they really need. What you have done is you've established a larger household with more possessions and built up an estate towards the goal of leaving them an inheritance and all of those things are bad for them and all of those things are bad for the world. And it all starts with love. And he says, you know, it's actually an unnatural love if you think about it. You know, the mother bird does throw the babies out of the nest after feeding them for the amount of time they need to be fed. The mother bear does let the yearlings go on their own after she's taught them how to fish. It's only humans that keep their children too long, who give their children too much, and who thereby not only are hurting their children, who aren't really preparing their children for the world, but they're also damaging the world by sucking up more resources than really the world has to share if all of us are getting what we need. And that's the beginning of the story, he said. And that, in the end, um, is the way we're going to have to deal with this issue. So, what John Woolman was doing was approaching people in a way that is unprecedented in my experience. Uh, and successful in a way that is almost, was unprecedented in the previous history of anti-slavery reform. He was arguably the first effective anti-slavery reformer. He was arguably the first man who ever convinced anybody to give up a slave. Um, he was at the beginning of a movement that involved a whole lot of people other than him. He wasn't the single person who started it. He was just a uh, a, a farmer and, and tailor from New Jersey. He was central to the story, but he was not the, the, uh, the actual person who started it. He was not um, the guy who everybody else followed. But he was an archetype. He was also a model of uh, what America might have become if anybody had listened to the whole story, if our culture had ever, ever bought the whole story. Right, because as modern writers have said, and this is why he looks increasingly modern and why my example of the fictitious modern uh, John Woolman might make any sense at all, is because it's really hard ever to sort out one act 
from its connection to all other acts. All right? So you want to buy a t-shirt that's made of organic cotton because that seems to be a responsible thing to do. Okay. If you read the labels very closely and you're willing to pay a little bit more, maybe not a little bit as a percentage of it, but if you're willing to pay more, you can buy an organic cotton shirt. But do you know how damaging the dyes were that made that shirt and their effect on the environment? Do you know that kind of detail about that shirt? Do you know whether child labor was involved in making that shirt? This is not a simple solution in the modern world. And he understood completely that there was not a simple problem in the 18th century. John Woolman knew that there was an integrated international market economy. Globalization, not by that name, existed in the 18th century. The British Empire stretched from the East Indies and India to Africa to the Americas and back again. There's no ship that brought you a bolt of cloth from England. That ship hit five or six ports, and everything you bought from that ship was subsidized by everything else that that ship ever carried. So anything you bought was connected to everything that you bought that wasn't either produced by you or produced directly in your own community. That was true in the 18th century, not just in the 21st century. So the lesson seems to be a modern one if the solution doesn't seem to be any easier than it was back then. Um, the, I, it, I, I see him every day in the newspapers now. It's hard not to. Um, because the way in which people relate to goods, the way in, people, in which people participate in the economy is central to the arguments that he always made. He said, if you love your children too much, and you're therefore going to try to build up an estate, then you're going to charge the people uh, to whom you are renting land, the farmer to whom you are renting land, more rent, which is going to lead him to have to work longer days and to work his help, probably his children also, harder than he otherwise would, and drive his animals harder than he otherwise would. And at the end of the day, he's going to be even more tired than he otherwise would be, and quite possibly that's going to be the source of a drinking problem. And all of this... The abuse of animals, alcoholism, these things are all connected. And these are all connected to the way in which we deal with people everywhere in the world. Every issue that has to do with race and culture and class across the globe are all connected, he was telling people. And there are a lot of comments from the 18th century that people didn't quite understand part of what he was talking about. That he was talking over their heads. That people didn't fully grasp how they not owning slaves, having never owned slaves, having never, having never benefited that they could recall personally by the labor of slaves, were responsible for slavery. And that's what he was trying to say. He was trying to say, it's not you, it's me. I'm trying. We have to try. And we have to try to get there. You know, there are projections. I read in the newspaper that the, um, animal, <laughs> the annual number of leisure uh, air travelers will grow from about 842 million, which it was two years ago, to 1.6 billion by 2020. Um, you can go a whole year as a really good environmentalist uh, with a hybrid car and, uh, and what else, and recycling and conserving water, and if you take one air flight in that year, you've blown the whole thing. Yeah, your carbon imprint has just gone through the roof. Yeah. One flight. 
Um, he argued against traveling. He said there's no good reason to travel. Everything you need is where you live already. And you only travel on God's work. Um, and that's what he had to always interrogate himself about. Am I really just going on God's work? Because if I'm not, I shouldn't go at all. Um, so he would very much appreciate where we've gotten our, ourselves to be in, in, in that regard. And I, you know, you, you can't imagine an 18th century man's politics, and I'm not even going to try to do that. But David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, had a wonderful uh, insight, a woman-esque insight the other day, about how the American culture has, has uh, gone from a culture of thrift, uh, which has now been replaced by a culture of hyper-consumerism. And woman predicted that. Holden said, that's the path we're on without having that language to yell. And so we're in the fix we are, um, largely because we didn't 250 years ago listen to guys like John Woman. And since I've never actually met the guy like the guy I made up uh, coming into my house in, in 2008, I think we've probably still got a long way to go. Thanks.